0: Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, the Victorians didn't actually travel to the moon, despite many steampunk imaginings thereof. But they were the first people, observed my guest Iwin Morris, to think that travel to the moon was not only possible, but that their science already possessed, or would soon possess, the means of getting there. This conference was based on the cascades of new technologies, new ways of making knowledge, and new visions about the future, which came together during the 19th century to create a new kind of world. In an important sense, then, it was indeed the Victorians who took us to the moon, Ewan Ritz Morris is professor of history at Aberystwyth University in Aberystwyth, Wales. Among his recent books are Nikola Tesla and the Electrical Future, published in 2019. But his most recent book is How the Victorians Took Us to the Moon. Ewan Morris, welcome to Historically Thinking.
1: Thank you very much. And thanks very much for having me.
0: So, what is a Victorian?
1: That's the kind of question that actually historians probably spend far too much time
0: yeah, thinking I, I, about. I wrote that question down, even though I knew it could take us
1: like at least thirty minutes to answer. <laughs> but we're going to do it in five. Yeah. The ways in which historians break up the chronology of the past are obviously in all kinds of ways. Yes, completely random. You know, even when you're thinking about centuries, well, you know, the break between one century and another is. It is, it is entirely circumstantial, so to speak, yeah. to the flow of events in the past. Um,
0: having that... said that, though, I mean,
1: I think that Victorian makes a good period. I mean, for a, I mean, for a number of reasons, um, well, actually I'm the source of reasons that I'm that I'm talking about in the book, mm-hmm. because you de- do s- see a new kind of Mentality, if you like, emerging broadly speaking around about the beginning of the nineteenth century, um, and the people who call themselves—I mean, they do start calling themselves Victorians—relatively um, early on in Queen Victoria's reign. They certainly see themselves as being different from their from their forefathers. They're progressive. They're forward-looking. I mean, all of these things that kind of feed into what I want to say about the way that they think about the future. Um, of course, I mean the the specific Victorians, if you like, that I'm talking about here, um, have to be kind of narrowed down a little bit more than that. I mean, it's, a, it's very easy to use Victorian as a kind of lazy way of talking about you know, the people during you know, the people during this period. Um, the sorts of Victorians I'm talking about here are overwhelmingly middle class, um, and actually, I mean that's another defining feature of the period. I mean, this is a period when people start thinking of themselves in terms of class. I mean, if you went back to the 18th century and asked somebody, "What class are you?" you would probably get some quite peculiar looks. Mm-hmm. Um, if you ask a Victorian, "What class are you?" they'll they would probably, or they'd want to say, I'm middle class, because yeah. they have this notion of you know, the middling middling sources translated into the middle class, they're economically powerful, they're respectable, they're disciplined. All those things are both the working class supposedly and the aristocrats aren't. Um, Suddenly, so, I, mean, I think there are a lot there are there are a lot of distinctive features of Victorians. I mean the ones I'm talking about as they are middle class. Um, the men of science—that's what they tend to call themselves rather than scientists—and it's it is very much men of science. You know, mm-hmm. this is a very, you know, this this is a very masculine culture. I mean, both in in its science and in its engineering, in its technology, in its invention. So that the sort of Victorian science and technology are in all sorts of ways kind of bound up with Victorian ideas and ideals of. Masculinity,
0: and uh, it's an imperial culture. Uh, even for, and, and, and it even applies, or maybe even especially applies for those in it, say more of a Manchester liberal variety who are anti-imperial. I mean, the imp- the empire is a reality in their minds.
1: Um, yes, and I mean in all sorts of ways. Like mean, the well, what we would now call technoscience. <laughs> the Victorians would would frown at the term was entirely bound up with kind of different sorts of imperial visions. Um, If We're jumping ahead and thinking about things like the telegraph, which I'm sure we'll talk about in far more detail later on. um, The telegraph is a technology to run empires with, Mm -hmm. basically. Um, Much of the science that's generated during the 19th century is entangled in different sorts of ways with, with you know with 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 the business of of empire, with the business of colonial expansion,
0: exploring expeditions, the HMS Challenger, even those things. I mean, Cook is the predecessor, but then everyone wants to do that. That's just there's a new book out on the base of the U.S. naval exploring expeditions. There are like eight or nine of them. One of them goes to the Holy Land to map the Holy Land for the United States. Um, but yes, these, but I, th- these are all sorts of things that empires or new republics, new nations do to show that they're a nation.
1: Yes. It's a demonstration of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a demonstration of power with very practical purpose. You know, so, you know, so you have kind of 19th century exhibitions to map the variations in the world's magnetism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which on the one hand is you know, a scientific enterprise, but they're doing it, and they're doing on doing it on British Navy ships because that offers yet another way of trying to, well, basically figure out where you are. at yeah. see, you now, if you can successfully map those variations, then you can you, you know you can trace your route with them. So, yeah, you know, there are very important navigational and, and you know, practical purposes in these sorts of scientific exhibitions. You know, so even when they're sending exhibitions to you know, to observe eclipses or to observe the transit of Venus, it's an expression of power. Look, we can do this. You know, we can transport astronomical observatories you know, to any part of the globe that we choose. But it's also, you know, it's it's something of practical import as well.
0: So throughout the book is a uh, really interesting and important idea that a lot of listeners probably haven't considered and that at, in 1800, 1820, there's a very different idea of progress than there is in 1900. And that without that idea of progress, it's hard to imagine going to the moon The Victorians didn't do it, but certainly there is this, an idea or a spirit and a culture of progress, which is created throughout the 19th century without which Going to the moon is
1: impossible. Is that too? Am I overstating your? Um, you? No, I mean, I, I mean, I think that's <clears throat> that 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 that's key in all sorts of ways. Um, very, very broadly speaking, when you know, pe- you know, pe- you know, people tend to think, you know, people in the eighteenth century tend to think about think of nature, if you like, as being ideally, at least, in a state of mm-hmm. equilibrium. And society is also imagined as being in a state of right. equilibrium. things are the way they are, and that's pretty much yeah you know, the way that yeah you know, yeah you know, that yeah you know, the balance it, may get tilted to one t- too much to one side or the other, but it's basically a balance. And,
0: and you see this everywhere because the worst thing you can say about anybody is that they're immoderate, um, and, and yeah. that can go that can go either way. Yeah,
1: that can that can that can go up and down, um, but. Round about the beginning of the 19th century, in account of the physical world and in aspirations about the social world, you see this kind of notion of well, you know, progress. Um, in accounts of the natural world, um, you have new ideas about how the universe you know, came to being and change, so that you know, our solar system, for example, wasn't always the way it is. You know, This is a nebula hypothesis that yeah you know, the, you know, the systems like ours start out as clouds of gas in space and gradually coalesce into a star with planets going around it so yeah you know, yeah you know, so there's a kind of progression built into natural law um theories of evolution that start to emerge around right the beginning of the 19th century again yeah you know, this notion that nature is progressive that things are going to change that things aren't static um and you get the same kind of aspiration in in terms of how people imagine society as well, society is progressive. Um, A young John Stuart Mill in the 1830s writes about the new spirit of the age. And it's progress. Things are going to be different. We're not going to be the same as our forefathers. We're going to be doing things differently. And it's that kind of vision that, as you said, in all sorts of ways, enables new ideas about the future. Yeah, and the future as a place that's going to be different. Right. You um, can't, yeah, I mean that, you, yeah, that might sound mundane to us. I mean, we think, I mean, what else would the future be other than different? Yeah. But it's a new idea in the 19th century that the future isn't going to be the same as the present.
0: And you can imagine it. You can speculate about it. You can, I mean, this is a rather, this is kind of banal perhaps for some, but it, you can't have science fiction without this sort of this vision. As you point out, some of the ideas of going to the moon written about by in the 17th century are basically is, is a different genre of literature. It's utopian literature. It's Thomas More brought up to date, just set on farther away. Um, um, but now, now you've got Jules, you've got Jules Verne and many, many, many others who are, who are, in some way, predicting the future.
1: Um, yes, I mean I, th- I mean, I think that's right. And there's a kind of interesting interplay, I think, of the 19th century between the scientific romance, as they would call it, and the scientific reality. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is, as you say, I mean, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a key difference between those kinds of 17th century imaginings of going to the moon and the way that the Victorians talk about it. Um, yeah, I mean, when... John Wilkins or whoever in the 17th century talks about going to the moon how they get there for example doesn't really matter you, know, they, you, know, you might imagine you know, flying to the moon on a chariot pulled by a bunch of swans or geese yeah, nobody seriously thinks that that's the thing that can happen so to speak it's just simply a convenient vehicle for getting you to the moon or the moon is going to be a utopian society and that's really the point of the of the narrative In the 19th century, um, when Jules Verne or HG Wells or George Griffith or John Jacob Astor, whoever, um, talks about going to the moon, they pay serious attention to the mode of getting there. They pay serious attention to how you really are going to get to the moon. Um, Because as far as they're concerned, going to the moon isn't a fantasy. It's a prediction. It's a th- it's, it is a thing that can happen, and it's a thing that's going to happen. I mean, n- I mean, not just you know, not just in the realm of, of scientific romance. Um, Unsurprisingly, you know, round about the turn of the century, round about 1900, um, you, know, you get lots of newspaper articles, magazine articles, speculating about. What will life be like in the, in the year, to, year 2000? Yeah, because it's a new century beginning and, as, and you know, added spice. You know. The end of the next century is going to be the end of a millennium as well, saying so, you know, the, the year 2000. It's absolutely taken as read in all of these kinds of you know, factual predictions of the future. But yes, people will be traveling to the moon. Or traveling to the planets. It's absolutely understood that this is something that's within technological capacity. That if it is, if you know, that if it isn't precisely already within the Victorians' grasp, that the capacity to travel into space really isn't all that far away. Yes. You know, so you see, Verne or or Wells or whoever speculating with their current technologies and just kind of doing that little extension. You know, that's going to be what it is that, you know, know, that takes us into space Mm -hmm. and it's a plausible scenario as far as they're concerned.
0: Let's uh, I want to touch on several points in the book that are of of interest to me. I don't want to, we can't, we can't talk about the whole thing. There's a lot in it's 250, 300 pages, but, we can't get into all the details of royal society politics, uh, which are both thrilling and boring simultaneously, <laughs> uh, but, and also really important. But, but we'll try to talk a little bit about them because they influence the story. So in 1820, so I had spoken of Cook's voyage with the Endeavor. Uh, a man who was made by that voyage was Joseph Banks, uh, who in 1778, uh, about 10 years later, is elected president of the Royal Society and is president until his death in 1820. And it, it strikes me that Banks is in many ways, he's both a founder and a builder. And he's also a, a damper. And he, he keeps things from happening. He's, he's we could call him a a tyrant in a way, a tyrant of the Royal Society. And it is a way in which he functions in more or less the same way that in mathematics and astronomy, Newton's legacy often serves to be as a, a damper on progress like, for example, in the failure—somewhat trivial, but not true trivial—the um, failure to use Leibniz's notation. Um, mm-hmm. That these are these are ways in which British science almost almost willfully holds itself back.
1: Um, banks, of course, wouldn't. He would it. not. I mean, and, there, <laughs> and we, and we should.
0: And, and he and, and there and there was certainly so he did plenty of good things, but by like eighteen ten, he's sort of you know he's sort of run his he's run his race.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, Banks would probably be quite complimented in a perverse sort of way at, at the description <laughs> of, of him as a tyrant. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, yes, I mean, he 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 ruled the royal society with an iron fist. Um, and in that kind of sort of typical you know, sort of 18th century Regency fashion, you know, had very, very carefully during his career, you know, created this kind of network of patronage. Uh, Kew Gardens, the Royal Observatory, the Board of the Admiralty, and so on and so on.
0: Institution after institution after institution. Just yeah. a, a fundamental importance for what comes later.
1: Yeah, you know, which, you know, which meant that you know, essentially by, you know, by, by the 1800s, you really couldn't do anything in the world of English science without going through banks. And if you weren't banks kind of person then you weren't going anywhere. Um, and, yeah, and Banks had very, very specific ideas about what kinds of people should be, for example, fellows in the Royal Society, what so kinds who, of people who, should be. Who sh-
0: who sh- so who's he interested in? Who does he think is a man of science yeah. or a natural philosopher, I guess, as he would yeah. have said?
1: Natural philosophers are of necessity, gentlemen as far as somebody like Banks is concerned. Um, I mean, that's not really particularly novel to Banks. Um, from the 17th century onwards, it's understood that knowledge can really only properly be made by by gents. Um, because, it's hilariously, gentlemen can be trusted. You can take gentleman's word for it. In fact, you're required to take a gentleman's word for it because if you refuse to take a gentleman's word, <laughs> then you're causing quite serious offence. So you, so you know, so when a gentleman tells you, I carried out this experiment and this happened, then you can believe them. Um, if a merchant says, well, when I carried out this experiment, this happened, well, you don't necessarily believe them because a merchant is self-interested. A merchant wants to sell you things. So, so knowledge has to be made by gentlemen. And for somebody like Banks, natural philosophy really is the cultural preserve, by and large, of leisured gentlemen, men of means, men who can use natural philosophy, can use their scientific knowledge, on the one hand, as a kind of cultural adornment. It's a kind of sign of civility. In much the same way, that going on grand tours and coming back with statues, statuary from ancient Rome is a sign of refinement. Botany is a sign of re- refinement. Um, so, no, so, yes, yes, yes. So it's kind of cultural prestige, but I mean also kind of a means of individual enrichment. I mean, you can make yourself wealthy by knowing enough chemistry to. To improve your land, for example, breeding so,
0: mer- breeding merino sheep as yes, Banks does. Yes,
1: yeah. yes, yes. So that, you know, that's what a natural philosopher is. A natural philosopher is a legend, gentleman, time in their hand, and you know, the liberty to pursue this kind of this kind of knowledge. That's the kind of that you know, that's the kind of image of natural philosophy.
0: The same people that run for parliament. Or stand for parliament, I should say. They're not necessarily running for parliament.
1: Uh, yeah, they rarely yeah. need to Rarely run. need
0: to run. <laughs> but least, that's that's the, the whole point. They have they have the independent income which enables them to take an interest in science and politics, the affairs uh, yes, of the state.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, so I mean it, it. I mean exactly exactly the same kind of thing. But
0: by 1810, 10 years before his death, there are a many, many cracks in this the foundation which he has established.
1: Uh yes, I mean. Unsurprisingly, I mean, mean, there are new. There's a new generation. Um, Banks, as it happens, isn't very keen on things like mathematics. He's not that keen on astronomy, Uh, natural history, botany, that kind of thing. Is his thing? Um, But there are a lot of up and coming astronomers, people that we would now maybe call physicists, mathematicians, who feel kind of as if they're being kind of deliberately excluded. From the, from, you know, from the corridors of scientific power. And they have their own distinct vision of what it is to be a man of science as well. Um, they would agree with Banks that a man of science needs to be a gentleman. But they have a rather different notion of what, what being a gentleman is about. Um, and how it is that science should be, should be practiced. Science needs to be disciplined I mean, in all, I mean, all, in all kinds of ways. I mean, this, I mean, it's during this period um, that this kind of overarching natural philosophy starts breaking down into different specialisms, you know, different, well, different disciplines in our terms. And, it's a distinctive feature of these disciplines that they need to be pursued in a disciplined fashion. Um, So this new generation starts doing things like setting up their own society. Um, So you have a geological society, which banks initially joins, but then starts to understand that, that these new geologicals aren't going to regard themselves as a kind of little satellite to the Royal Society which is what he wants them to be but they're going to be their own independent specialist body Um, The Astronomical Society is founded who absolutely are not going to be (laughs) Joseph Banks lapdogs in any sense sense at all and in particular the, the astronomicals really want to get their hands on some of the money that Banks and Banks cronies commands. You know, they want to be on the board of longitude. They want to get their hands on you know, the money that flows from the Admiralty into in, in, into the Royal Society. You know, Banks just about manages to keep keep it all under control, so to speak. But I mean, as soon as Banks dies, as soon as the old man of science is out of the way, then civil war breaks out in the Royal Society, but, you know, between these kind of competing visions of you know, what, you know, what science is and what science is for. Science for the new guys is meant to be disciplined. You have to have a particular kind of disciplined mind. It's a vocation. It's something that you do because you're a gentleman, because you have the capacity to do it. And it's future-looking in a new sort of way. During this period, science and engineering start to be seen really as, you know, these are the tools that you're going to use, that are going to be used to remake the future, to invent a new kind of future.
0: So where does someone like, uh, so so briefly, Sir Humphrey Davy, who's a sort of a gentleman impresario of this uh, in a way that, that banks uh, I, I, I would approve of, He's uh, briefly president of the Royal Society, but um, there are many other people with very different ideas. So we'll hear these names again and again throughout the conversation. Uh, John Herschel of the fabulous Herschel family. Uh, Charles Babbage, he of the of the machines. Uh, but where does Michael Faraday fit into all this? After all, Michael Faraday is not a gentleman. Uh, he is, but he is a genius.
1: Uh, yes. No, it's, I mean, Let's, let's let's run through them. Let, 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 let's start with Davy um because I mean Davy's actually a really nice example. Davy of course comes from humble beginnings. He starts off as an apothecary's pr- apprentice in Penzance um, By the 1820s he's achieved you know, the pinnacle of scientific success. He's certainly as far as the English are concerned, he's, you know, he's Europe's greatest chemist um, He's married money, He's he's a knight. He is in almost all senses of the word a gentleman, apart from the from, from the humble beginnings, and yeah, he becomes president of the royal society, and he has a dreadful time because he tries to bring the warring camps together. So inevitably, he ends up being despised universally, both by the Banksian old guard, who see him as selling out to the to the to the new generation. And despised by the new generation who thinks that he should be one of them, that he's one of the old guys. De- Departmental politics is always the same. Yes, I mean, nothing, nothing's changed there in a, in a, in a couple of centuries. Um, Herschel and Babbage are you know—are the epitome of the new breed. You know, they're, you know, they're mathematicians, um, they're ambitious, they see themselves as being disciplined, and their youth, at any rate, are quite radical in, ter- in terms of their politics. They think that the way things are, yeah, you know, the state of British science is nepotistic. It's corrupt in much the same sort of ways that that reformers all across British British culture are during the 1820s, portraying you know, the old establishment as corrupt, in need of reform, you know, in need of kind of you know, new people, at, new people at the helm. So you know that they're at the vanguard of this kind of new notion of, of discipline science. Um, Faraday, of course, is really interesting. Um, Faraday is a blackness son. Faraday was apprenticed to a book to to a, to a bookbinder. Uh, he was Humphrey Davies' laboratory assistant at the at the at the Royal Institution. Um, Gets into trouble in eighteen in in, in eighteen twenty with his early electromagnetic experiments because people think he's stolen somebody else's ideas because he's a lab assistant. Now she can't have original original philosophical ideas of his own. Yeah, what's going on here? Um, and Faraday manages himself very very carefully. I mean, he makes himself. In a certain sense, kind of, you know, the epitome of gentlemanliness, scientific gentlemanliness, without being himself really a gentleman, um, he becomes in all sorts of ways the spokesman of science for gentlemanly society. Nature's gentleman, somebody I forget who mm. calls it, and keeps himself very much at arm's length from the kind of the yeah you know, the politicking of the of the Royal Society.
0: And that the, and then a sort of counterweight emerges from as we'll, we'll see, not too surprised it comes from up north, uh, the British Association for the Advancement of Science. Can you briefly describe its genesis and uh, then we'll move on to the what else is coming from the north?
1: Um, yeah. one thing that's been going on across Britain really from the late 18th century. You're going to see kind of local scientific societies, literary and philosophical societies established in, in Manchester as the first one, um, industrial city on the rise and places like York. And right about the beginning of the 1830s, some of the leaders of these kind of provincial scientific societies get together and say, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a meeting of all of us together. Um, so they all meet in York in 1831. And some of the London gents, Babbage, for example, said, Oh well, let's go and see what these 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 provincials are, are up to. Is there anything interesting going on here? Um And they think that, oh, hello. There's something interesting going on here. This is an alternative power base. Yeah, you know, they've you know, they've at least temporarily by now lost the battle in the Royal Society. The Royal Society has just appointed the royal duke of sussex as their new president rather than john herschel so you know the radicals the reformers are on the back foot but the BWS provides them with an, alter- an, an alternative source of 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 power so the BWS has its meeting in in york and then every year every summer it you know, kind of moves around from from city to city it's in oxford and it's in Cambridge. Then it goes. You know, it, it, it travels around Britain, never in London. And it's it's a kind of huge scientific jamboree towards the end of, of every summer, where all the kind of scientific lions, the big names, go and stand on stage and bask in the admiration of can kind of, huge audiences turn up to mm-hmm. to these things, you know, hundreds, not thousands of people. So this, so
0: and we've set up this at least the opportunity for institutional reform by having the Royal Society having a competitor. Uh, nothing can concentrates mind in and institution more than a competitor. Um, but this sets a necessary uh, foundation, institutional f- foundation for the development of the of the scientist and of the culture of the scientist. But let's let's talk about men with dirty hands, um, engineers. Uh, you have a begin with the wonderful vignette, which I've always loved, of dinner in the Thames Tunnel. Could you describe that to listeners?
1: Um no, I mean it's it's absolutely <laughs> it's amazing and quintessentially 19th century, I think. Um Imagine the scene. I mean you're in a tunnel, you're literally in a tunnel underneath the Thames, just a few feet over your head the muddy waters of the thames is flowing the thames tunnel itself which it's, it hasn't been finished when they have their dinner underneath it's, it's it's barely half built in fact they're having the dinner to celebrate the fact that it's you know they are restarting after it's you know, after a rather unfortunate flooding it's a kind of bravura gesture of defiance against the forces of nature if you like, you know, there they are under the Thames. You know, the, the band of the grenadier guards is serenading them. You know, they're sitting around, a ta- you know, they're sitting down at tables with kind of glittering silverware, crystal, knocking back <laughs> knocking back the wine, eating fine food underneath the Thames. Um, the Thames tunnel was built, was in the process of being built um, by Marc Brunel, a French émigré, uh, who'd who had to leave France because he he was a royalist essentially, um, but really by now really being built by by his son Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who would become the kind of epitome of you know, the English engineer kind of self-made, hard bitten, absolutely kind of rugged masculine. And that's the new kind of culture of en- of engineering that's 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 developing during this during this period, um, the engineer as hero, the engineer as you know the man with the kind of practical vision, the practical knowledge that would enable them to transform the British landscape. And literally, these people were transform transforming the, the the British landscape, and. Creating and transforming a future at the same time. So Brunel, um, or something like Thomas Telford, um, or the Stephenson's you know, father, father and son—people um, who were, or at least saw themselves as, you know, a self-made, practical men who who kind of embodied the capacity to change the world around them—and they're like a new breed of heroes.
0: You write, grand projects like the Thames Tunnel were deliberately ambitious in their scope because they were quite explicitly intended to inaugurate a new way of doing things. And here's for my the cash value for my for my money. They were meant to show how the moral courage, superior skill, and sheer vision of practical men could bully nature into submission. Could you expand on that?
1: Yes, I mean I mean that, that, you know, that's how they see themselves. Yeah. You, know, you, you, know, you, you can make a tunnel under the Thames. You know, Brunel dev- you know, invents this contraption he calls the shield. versions of which are still in use today that's how you do that's how you do tunneling. So it's, it's this kind of face that you sort of have at the end of a tunnel. you dig forward a little bit in different cells, you push forward, you brick behind it. And it's it's doing things you couldn't otherwise do. You're building, if you're Telford, you're building astonishing aqueducts like the pont Aqueduct in, in North Wales. Mm. Or you're building you know, his bridge of the, of the Menai Straits, this massive, by the standards of the time, suspension bridge, which is going to be a vital strategic resource. Again, think empire, because crossing the Menai Straits from Wales to the island of Anglesey, and then from Hollyhead across the sea to Dublin, you know, that's the link between, between, between Britain and Ireland. You're building canals, you're building railways, you're digging tunnels, you're, you know, you're, 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 you're building cuttings, you're transforming the landscape. You're, you're showing the world that Britain can subjugate, Britain can domesticate its landscape can transform its landscape and make something new out of it. And of course, they're doing that throughout the empire. And
0: then by 1830, you can, if you're the Stevensons, you can build the incredible machines that enable a person to travel two times, three times, four times as fast as anyone, anyone's ever traveled before. It's only 40 miles an hour. But try doing that on a horse. Uh, try walking it. Um, all of a sudden, the, these men with dirty hands—from I mean, people of uncertain social origin—or actually, pretty like a, a wig maker's assistant, like uh, Arkwright or um, you know James Brindley, another blacksmith's son, I think. Um, but they—they—they they, they all of a sudden they're creating this a new world in which nature seems to be subdued.
1: Yes, and again, I mean, that, you know, that kind of emphasis on, you know, that, you know, that these men are, or certainly regard themselves as being self-made. Yeah. Um, in, in all sorts of ways, you know, you know, the Bible of the 19th century, other than the real Bible, um, is Samuel Smiles' Self-Help, um, published in 1859, um, the same year as, as Darwin's Origin of Species. Interestingly.
0: And probably more influential. Um initially. <laughs> initially, yes. I would say.
1: Um, I mean what I mean what Smiles offers in self help is a kind of you know, a recipe for middle class men. You know, what do they need to do to make it? What do they need to do to make themselves? It kind of kind of offers a kind of series of potted biographies of you know, men who have made it. And you know there are people like the Stevensons, There are people like Brigham. You know, they're, you know, they're engineers. They're men of science. They're inventors. And the emphasis again and again and again is on discipline, character. That if you, know, if you want to help yourself, then you have to work hard. You have to stick to it. You have to be disciplined. Discipline becomes a kind of hallmark for the Victorians of what, of, 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 of what success is meant to be better. So, discipline in some ways becomes the hallmark of middle-class masculinity during this period. A middle-class man is is somebody who you know, who embodies the capacity for discipline, which again is one of the reasons why Faraday is held up as such a paragon, because of his capacity to discipline himself. I mean, you know, there's a wonderful paragraph in John Tyndall's biography of, of Faraday that like, actually goes along the lines of you know, Faraday was not slow to anger. He, you know, he had a temper, but he had learned how to keep himself under control. He had learned self-discipline. He'd learned to channel his passions into his work, and that's what made him what he was. Yeah, that And that's... That's what men of science. That's what engineers were meant to be like. Yeah,
0: this is I mean, this is a, a Victorian obsession. Simon Heffer calls this this is the pursuit of self-perfection. Um, yes, which is you see in, in 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 you see it in Faraday, you see that in, in Smiles, you see in all these people. Uh, I mean, it's it's throughout Trollope. I, I wrote my notes to you. Uh, I'm always fascinated by the character of Sir Roger Scatcherd and <laughs> Doctor Thorne, who is a bricklayer, a navvy, who makes his way up. He's he's basing him on Telford and Arkwright and Brindley and all these people. But uh, it's a very keen observation of the development of class at that moment in which um, Scatcherd turns to drink because he has no friends below him or above him. He advises governments on railway lines, but he is not going to be part of that gentleman set. He is can no longer be with the navvies from which he came. he can't be with the workers because he's a hard man and and now he's above them and, and greatly wealthy and so in the end he turns to alcohol as his only friend. Um, not saying that's r- related but this is this is part of this this is sort of the problem of class and distinction and where do you make yourself in this new world
1: um yes and ha- I mean, I, I and how do you discipline,
0: and how do you discipline yourself
1: uh, yeah because I mean that you know, that's the key. Tourists yeah. would tell us that you have to be, you know, you, you, know, you have to have that that discipline. I and mean, I mean, not just in trouble. I mean, I mean, if you think of other kind of late nineteenth century fiction, I mean, think Jekyll and Hyde, for example. I mean, that's I mean, that's what Jekyll and Hyde yeah. are about. It's it's, you know, you you know, you, you have Jekyll, the, you know, the self disciplined man of science.
0: Uh-huh.
1: But he lets himself, literally lets himself go. <laughs> and what comes out is, of course, the monster,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mr. Hyde. Yeah, you know, Mr. Hyde is what happens to middle-class men who, who don't preserve, you know, who don't keep themselves disciplined.
0: Let's talk about the telegraph. Um, it is, I think, astonishing to th- that in 1842, Morse is showing off, what, a 12-mile? Oh, that was this Washington to Baltimore line, 1842, 1844. Uh, And then by 1858, Cyrus Field can seriously plan and project and they can begin the transatlantic telegraph line. This is an amazing advance. And the ability for the first time in human history, I mean, you've gone from sending things as fast as a horse can gallop if you're in a very organized empire like the Persians, relay stations, all the rest of that sort of thing, to sending things that basically the s- messages at the speed of light. Um, that that has to be one of the greatest communication... Tra- that has to be the greatest communication transformation in human history.
1: Uh, yes, I mean, I, I agree entirely. You know, with, I mean, with, with the telegraph, suddenly, as you say, before the telegraph, information basically travels as, far, as fast as you can, whether you're walking on a horse, on a stagecoach, on a boat... That's, 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 how, that's how fast information goes. With a telegraph, I mean, once you have established telegraph networks, the transfer of information is more or, le- more or less instantaneous. And that has all sorts of profound consequences um, for how people see themselves and their place in the world. Um, pundits literally talk about you know, the world getting smaller. You know, that's the effect of the railway. That's the effect of the telegraph. You know, it's smaller because well, you know, places that it used to take two days to travel to, you can now get to in a matter of hours. Places that it used to take two days to send a message to, you can now send a message to in a matter of minutes. And it releases, as you say, I mean, it, I mean, it releases all sorts of sorts of new possibilities. Um, and as you say, I mean, I mean it's astonishing. You know, within you know, less than 20 years, they're trying to yeah you know, they're trying to put that line across a, across the Atlantic again I mean it's a, it's a kind of on the one hand completely hubristic and on the other hand completely practical enterprise. yeah they can do it I mean okay the first Atlantic cable broke but eight years later it didn't break yeah. and they and they had that link ac- across the Atlantic and again you know, that kind of stood for I mean you know, it kind of feeds into and fuels the Victorians' faith in the capacity of their science, the capacity of their of their engineering, because yeah, yeah, they really did this.
0: And it has, it has. I think that telegraph operators are to the nineteenth century as computer hackers are to the twentieth. Um, it it should be no surprise that Edison begins as a telegraph operator. All of his and all of his early Inventions, and there are you know hundreds of maybe thousands of people competing with him, or is how to invo- increase the volume of information that can travel down a telegraph line.
1: Uh, That's, yes, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Because I mean that, you know, in fact, information is money. Yes, <laughs> yeah, information is 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 what buys and sells commodities. So you know the more information you can get down the line, then the more you can buy and sell. Um, because I mean, it's interesting, for example, to think about that in the context of the telephone. I mean, yeah. the telephone's invented in 1876 by Alexander Graham Bell. Um, and what, well, you know, whilst it seems to us, again, you know, we we use our phones all the time, it seems self evident what a phone is for. Um, in 1876, is not at all obvious what the phone is, what the telephone is for, other than as a kind of Another you know, another example of technological ingenuity, mm. because you can, you can send information down a telegraph wire far, far, far more effectively Effect. yeah. than you know, than a human voice. So it takes time, in a sense, for people to figure out. You know, they think, well, we can use telephones. Yeah, you know, we can have a. Yeah, yeah, we 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 can use our telephones to listen to the opera. It's only. Rather more gradually, because yeah, well, we can have, we can have telephones in our homes. We can talk to each other. We can we can phone the butcher or the baker and order more goods. It's only kind of or you know, businessmen. It turns out can actually talk to each other mm-hmm. and make deals in different sorts of ways. I mean, it, it, it takes a it takes a while for the kind of you know for the you know, for the cultural place of the telephone. Yeah, to there, to be established.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because it, so often technologies follow cultural grooves but technology is changing so quickly, there is no place, there is no groove for the telephone to fit into. Uh, that's um,
1: not clear where, you know, yeah. you, know, you know, what do you do with this other than marvel at the capacity to, you know, to send voices down a wire?
0: Yeah, I, someone that was just on, on Twitter uh, showing some a map of, their, of um, transatlantic cables. And of course, the fiber optic cables that, now connect the world follow precisely the same routes and come ashore in the same places as those undersea cables of the late 19th century um uh, it's, yes, what, pretty, it's pretty much it's pretty much i mean why change why change a good thing i suppose oh, yeah, I mean, yes. but, but 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 it's it is it is they have established this sort of they they are the the the, the network the, the neural network of the world is established between 1858 and 1888, as people are laying these cables everywhere. I mean, everywhere.
1: Uh, yeah, and and they, and they use that analogy. Yeah. yeah, in the 1840s already they're talking about the nervous system of Britain. Yeah. that's the telegraph. That's the telegraph system. They they very very quickly draw that analogy between you know, telegraphs and nerves and nerves and telegraphs. I mean, it kind of works 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 both ways, so to speak. And yes, I mean, certainly one of the reasons underlying kind of a huge British investment um, in, the, in the underwater cable industry during the second half of the century is because it's clearly understood that underwater telegraphy is vital to imperial interests. I mean, one of the you know, main goals of, of, of British telegraphy towards the end of the century is to establish what they call the All Red Line. (laughs) And what they mean by the All Red Line is a network of telegraph cables that links together all the outposts of empire, all the bits of the British Empire, without ever crossing over potentially hostile territory, by which they mean Russia, mainly, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. other European states as well. So that, you know, the network of communication that holds the empire together you know, can't be broken by enemy action. You know, that's, that's what the, the all red line is all about. You know, it's, it's, it's what holds the empire together. And of course the resources of empire go into making this network as well.
0: It's, of, it's probably from the telegraph that uh, Victorians developed their obsession with electricity uh, you point out how in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, everything is everything is about electricity. Uh, Captain Nemo, they fire underwater electric bullets uh, with special compressed gas rifles to shoot fish or otters or what have you. Of course, the entire Nautilus is lit by electric light. Um, it's also powered by some sort of strange electrical reaction coming with seawater. Um you say, you're actually talking about radioactivity here, but you say that, uh, let me just paraphrase, electricity offered new ways of thinking about what the possibilities of the future might be. Could you briefly expound on that?
1: Um, yes, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I mean, the telegraph, as you say, is key. In that, you know, the, I mean, the telegraph is a kind of graphic example in Victorian's face, if you like, of what you can do with electricity. It's almost as if you can't talk about electricity during the nineteenth century without kind of automatically invoking the future. Um, you know it, it, it's it's astonishing. You know, in you know, the Rainhill trials take place in eighteen twenty nine, and that's what establishes you know, Stevenson's Stevenson's rocket as the steam locomotive of the of, of the future. Within a decade of that, um, people are already thinking about steam as old hat. Steam is the past. (laughs) The future is going to be electrical. There are going to be electrical locomotives. There is going to be electrical power and light. Uh, There are going to be flying machines powered by electricity. Electricity is going to be ubiquitous. I mean, as a matter of fact, of course, the 19th century was very much the century of steam. Mm -hmm. But throughout the 19th century, electricity was always going to be so to speak, the fuel of the future. So I mean, even when you look at you know, how scientific romances at the end of the century are, you know, are thinking about, well, what's going to power these these vehicles taking us into space? Either explicitly or not that well hidden between the lines, it's usually some kind, of, it, It's it's usually electricity. Electricity is the kind of fuel of choice as far as, as, as far as the Victorians are concerned, it's, it's what the future is going to be. It's, it's what the future is going to be made out of.
0: So when Edison uh, starts coming up with not just the, the electric light bulb, but his entire system of electrical generation, there's like twenty years of preparation, of publicity, in order to prepare the the market uh, for his saturation uh, and for his for his syst- electrical system.
1: Um, yes, because. Uh, I mean, I suppose to an extent, I mean, you can see something like that happening now with, you know, with with the introduction, well, the reintroduction, one might say, of of electric cars, because Mm -hmm. you need lots of things to happen at the same time.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, you you need the networks and you need the technologies to kind of plug into the networks. Yeah. It all has has to happen together.
0: This gives me the opportunity. I mean, this is uh, the reason why Tesla is successful is because they built a supercharging network. At least in the in the and they build it in the states. They build along every international high uh, national highway, every um, you know every one of the federal highways. Uh, and the the fact that other car manufacturers haven't caught up with that or thought about that is is to my mind is seems to indegra- uh, ignoring the lessons of the technological past. Um, because,
1: well, no, I mean, you—you know—you you, no, you can't, no, you can't have an electric car without without its network. <laughs> the no, network comes no, first. Yeah, you, no, you, no, you, no, you can't have electric power in the late nineteenth century without you know, means of transmission, means, means, means of generation, and it all has to, well, it all has to work together, so to speak.
0: So. Coming up with a sort of with well, a final example from the book is, um, you know, I, I, you have great chapter titles, but I, I was inspired to come up with my own ways of thinking about this. This would be the bar- the case of the baronet and his groom. <laughs> um, when I read about Sir George Cayley uh, long ago, probably in a, in a bootleg Ladybird book that made its way across the Atlantic. Um, I thought this was like English, uh, uh, this is sort of what the English say about themselves. They were upset about the Wright brothers, so they had to pretend that uh, some Yorkshireman had come up with flight, powered flight, you know, 100 years before him or whatever. But George K is actually a really interesting guy. I mean, speaking of the British Association of the of Science, he's there at the first meeting. uh, And he comes up, and I have since read the Wrights, saying that he's the only person that really did any work on aerodynamics really until then. Um, and and they're right because both of them had had sort of the same scientific, you know, uh, first principles approach to working on problems of flight. So, could you talk a little bit about Cayley and sort of what he
1: inaugurated? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, Cayley, as you say, is fascinating. I mean, he's he, he's yeah, he, he's an English landed gentleman. Yep. So not quite the kind of yeah, you know, the yeah, you know, yeah, you know, the typical sort of hard-handed engineering engineering stereotypes, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but he's, fasc- he's fascinated by the possibilities of flight. I mean, right from the beginning of the of the 19th century, he's speculating as to, well, how can we do it? He, he's he's fascinated by balloons. He's fascinated by the possibility of you know, having balloons that will actually go where you want them to go, as <laughs> opposed to as being carried around by the wind. He's convinced of the possibility of of yeah, you know, of, of heavier than air, as we would think of the fl- flying machines, and tries of yeah, basically, I mean, what he does is build different sorts of yeah, he, he's he's trying to establish what what kind of shape if you like a flying machine mm-hmm. needs to be yeah, so what kind of shape does it need to be to glide effectively? Um, so he studies the flight of birds, for example, as Lord Rayleigh will later on. In the, in the 19th century, you know, for, you know, for much the same kind of reasons. Uh, yeah, famously in 1854, I mean, he sends his groom careening through the air in, in a glider to show that, yes, you know, indeed, you can do this. And other entrepreneurs are doing this as well. Um, my favourite image, I think, in the book is this fantastic image of the, of the, of the aerial steam carriage, Um flying through the air with you know, the Nile and the pyramids yeah. in the background the aerial steam carriage never flew but the aerial steam transit company very much wanted it to fly <laughs> yeah, yeah, they had a patent but- they thought that they they could make a steam engine that was light enough to to to, to do it to do it yeah so they commissioned this series of images. Of the aerial steam carriage flying across different landscapes and cityscapes. And I, I mean, I, I like the Nile one in particular, because again, mm-hmm. it reminds one you know, of the, the kind of imperial not so subtext of much of this technology. But this, is,
0: this is where I thought Cayley is really amazing, because he, re, he had the suspicion that, that you would never get a steam engine that would be light enough to power a flying machine. And so he experimented with what he experimented with, with heat engines, uh, yeah. with a gunpowder engine. Um, that would have been a, a treat to start. <laughs> Interesting. Well, um, yes. yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> many, of the, uh, no doubt many of the experimenters did not survive to write their paper. Uh, but the, uh, but it was, you know, and it was, the um, and lots of smart people like Samuel Langley of the Smithsonian, not a dummy, but persisted in the belief that steam would do the job. And it was, you know the rights were actually their mechanic, Charlie. I should remember his last name, but he had only seen. I love the story that he would only seen internal combustion once for about fifteen minutes. But when they said, "Hey, Charlie, build us a one-cylinder internal combustion engine," he built it. Yep, he did it. He did it. These
1: are the, you know, these are men of their hands. They yes, they are. Yeah, they yeah they're intimately acquainted with uh, you know, with with the machines with which they work.
0: Yeah and he knows he I mean and when you think about it when, once he's realized spark ignition of gasoline in a cylinder he's got the whole piston thing down steam engine blah blah it's easy enough to translate that um, and Dayton is filled with has more patents per capita in 1900 than any other city in the United States um so it's filled with people like that and which is part of the requirement for this sort of well yes sort, I mean, of, yeah, sort yeah, of future
1: I, I mean that, yeah, that kind of you know, Inventive fer- inventive ferment, I suppose yeah. one might say.
0: Yeah. So I, I want to conclude here with that sort of inventive ferment. You write, The Victorians changed the world by reinventing science. They turned it into a tool for making the future, and they were astonishingly successful in doing so. Thanks to their efforts, the world in 1900 had changed changed immeasurably from the world of 1800. Some born in the 1820s would have seen their world change during their lifetimes in unimaginable ways, and certainly on a scale that bore no comparison to the past." I would often like challenge my US history students um, that um, things had changed more between 1820 and 1860, um, or certainly between 1840 and 1900, than had changed in their lifetime, say between 1980 and 2010, um, maybe. I mean, but it, it, it's it, it's worth taking a moment to realize how uh, the the amazing pace of change throughout the late 19th century.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I'm I'm inclined to agree with you that you know, we live in a world that we think of as. Changing drastically in all sorts of ways. I think the Victorian world changed far more and in far more fundamental ways. I think than than our world is changing now in terms of in terms of those sorts of technologies. Um, but we've also inherited, I think, from the Victorians, yeah, you know, that you know, that way of thinking about the future. And. You know, who it is that makes the future and how the future is made, and in a certain sense, who, therefore, the future belongs to. Um, And that, I think, is something we probably need to think again about. Can you draw that out? By the end of the 19th century, by and large, even though the reality was very different... um, the Victorians imagined the future as being made by singular inventive men by Edison's, by Brunels, by Tesla's, Teslas by yeah. Westinghouses, and, and Einstein.
0: So well. and then and then Einstein's. Uh,
1: and we and, and there's that kind of imperial undercurrent you know, built into the way that late Victorian science and technology and institutions worked. Yeah, that are yeah you know, that are still there now. You know, we have our assumptions about what scientists look like. We have our assumptions about what inventors look like. Um, and they tend to look like you or me. They're male, they're white, they're middle class. We still tend to think about a future as a preserve of people like that. And that's a bit of and that's a bit of Victorian legacy that I think we seriously need to rethink. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, the reality of the 19th century was that the futures were being made collectively. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't Brunel tunnelling underneath the Thames. It was lots of miners tunnelling underneath the Thames.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it wasn't Brunel building the Great Eastern. It was lots of very, very skilled shipwrights building the Great Eastern. Mm-hmm. It wasn't Edison making light bulbs. There was a lot of bright young men in Menlo Park it's all really collective,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we need to kind of remember that, and think in terms of well, you know, if if we want our futures to belong to all of us, then we need to rethink you know, how we think about how it's being made. You know, who you know, who really makes it? You know, it widen it, the pool. Yeah, of people it, it, it can make tomorrow.
0: It's interesting that you said that. I mean, I, I'm sure you're right, but the, what also strikes me that I would like to preserve from the Victorians. Is a bit more hopefulness about the future. Um, the future for the Victorians was exciting, and I don't think the future is exciting for people anymore. I think it's it's apocalyptic, in like you know, in in the worst possible sense. <laughs> um,
1: yes, yes. I mean, I think that's right. And yeah, I mean, we you know, we might borrow from the Victorians at least the sense that look, we can actually do this. We can actually change the future. It needs the collective will to do it, but the Victorians changed the world. we can we can do it too.
0: My guest today is Iwan Rees Morris. He's the author of How the Victorians Took Us to the Moon. Iwan, thank you so much for joining us on and being part of historically thinking.
1: It's been my pleasure.
0: And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of historically thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.